The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the U.S. Geological Survey brings new technology to an old mission. Plus, still time to show off your cybersecurity muscles in this annual President's Cup cybersecurity competition. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, diversity and inclusion, those can refer to people who are wired differently from most people. A handful of federal agencies have started so-called neurodiversity initiatives, focusing on hiring people with autism and other neurodivergent conditions. But government-wide neurodiversity efforts have been slow to gain traction. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Jen King has worked for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency since the year 2000. She joined NGA out of college and immediately excelled as an analyst, but found herself struggling with the social aspects of an office job. King had no reason to suspect there was any particular reason for that until a member of her church handed her a book called As for Girls by Rudy Simone. It describes the experiences of women and girls with autism spectrum disorder. The book sat at the bottom of King's desk for six months. And I read through it in one night and cried because it was me. It was my life. King has continued to excel at the agency after being diagnosed as autistic midway through her career. I had amazing supervisors at that time that were really supportive. And they were like, you know, hey, okay, you know, let's go and get diagnosed. We're really excited to learn about all this. Let's continue on this journey because we were about to have 10 to 15 more of you. So I went and sought diagnosis and... For me, myself, it's been a huge learning experience. That was more than a decade ago. Now, in addition to her role as a senior analyst, King leads NGA's neurodiversity program. It began in 2020 as a pilot program to recruit people with autism. After a successful start, NGA plans to hire a new cohort of neurodivergent individuals this year. Neurodiversity is an umbrella term that refers to diversity of cognitive functions. It covers things like autism, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, and dyslexia. People with those conditions face high rates of unemployment, even though many are capable workers. And a new report by the MITRE Corporation says neurodivergent individuals often have skills, like pattern recognition, that would make them particularly good candidates for work in places like the intelligence community. While many private sector companies have launched neurodiversity initiatives in recent years, NGA's program is one of the few inside the federal government. Teresa Thomas is program lead for Neurodiverse Talent Enablement at MITRE, which partnered with NGA on its pilot program. I think it's just slow. I think folks are very cautious. I think they're waiting to see how it all shakes out with the agencies that are doing it. And some agencies are doing things, they're just not talking about them. And as you can imagine, those are the agencies that just don't talk about the things they do. Depending on their condition, neurodivergent people may face challenges in finding a job. Networking can be difficult for some, and many recruiters balk at gaps in a resume. Some people also have difficulty maintaining eye contact or talking at length during a job interview. Within the federal government, there are additional barriers. The Defense Department's policy excludes autistic candidates from military service without exception. And many government positions require a security clearance that comes with a lengthy background investigation and potentially a polygraph interview. 
NGA's pilot provided specific training for autistic candidates going through the clearance process. Here's Thomas again. We had an idea that it was probably very difficult for someone specifically on the autism spectrum to get through all of that, especially a TSSCI with a polygraph kind of clearance. And uh, yes, it was even more complicated than I thought. The initiative also provided training for some of NGA's polygraph specialists on potential behavioral differences for people with autism. It made a huge difference. That was one of the takeaways that it's not impossible. It just takes some real thought for folks to get get through. King's experience at NGA shows neurodiversity programs aren't just about hiring new people. An estimated 15 to 20 percent of the world's population is neurodivergent, but many people don't know that they have autism, ADHD, or another condition. And others may be hesitant to reveal that in the workplace. Anthony Pasilio is vice president of Neurodiverse Solutions at CAI. I do see still that there is some resistance to having neurodiversity at work programs just across the board, right? That, you know, people think that there's a risk associated with it all the while knowing that there are neurodivergent individuals who are already working within that space. Pasilio says disclosing a neurodivergent condition can be a particularly difficult decision for an employee who may wonder whether it will impact their ability to move up the ranks. We're trying to put people in long-term, long-lasting, meaningful, and rewarding careers. I think being able to disclose at work and understand that somebody's behind you and supports you I think that goes a long way in making somebody feel that they are part of the organization, but more importantly, making them feel like they're a human being because potentially along the way, it's been very, very difficult for them. At NGA, King now leads a neurodiversity working group that helps raise awareness and drive inclusion efforts at the agency. Being able to be given the opportunity to speak about it allowed others to come out, if you will, and say that hey, I'm neurodivergent, and it's okay, and wow, the organization's doing great things to be extremely inclusive. I don't feel like I have to hide. And despite the slow start government-wide, Thomas is optimistic about the progress on neurodiversity being made across federal agencies. We are way past the what is neurodiversity stage, which is where we were when I first started this whole conversation. We're into the what does this look like where we are right now phase. In a public organization, that would be months, but this is the federal government, so this is years. But it's cautious, and I think people are starting to be really intentional. In October, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency launched its own Neurodiverse Federal Workforce Initiative. CISA says it will be a 15-month effort. Several interns will be placed on select cybersecurity teams with training for all participants, including the interns, team supervisors, managers, and any team leads. Congress is also pushing the Pentagon to take a closer look at the neurodiversity issue. The 2024 National Defense Authorization Act requires DOD to brief lawmakers on neurodiversity within the armed forces. The briefing will include current barriers to hiring and retaining neurodivergent individuals within DOD, both in military and civilian service. Going forward, King says small changes in a workplace, like offering an agenda 24 hours in advance of a meeting, can make a big difference for some people. And King sees a lot of those small changes starting to add up at places like NGA. We are seeing quite a bit of existing neurodivergent population come out and say that, you know, hey, I'm neurodivergent, I need a little bit of support here, or hey, here's where I think that we could help. 
I think that as time moves on and we hire more neurodivergent individuals, there is going to be quite a shift and a change in the federal workforce. I think we're going to see that pouring out more and more. There may be, you know, somebody that's in the room that's been afraid to speak up that will now speak up because now they feel included. Justin Doubleday, Federal News Network. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, there's still time to show off your cybersecurity chops in the annual President's Cup Cybersecurity Competition. But you've got to act fast. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Calling all federal employees wanting to test their cyber metal. Tomorrow is the last day for teams of two to five people to sign up for the fifth annual President's Cup Cybersecurity Competition. Individual competitors have until February 6th. For why this is a really important program, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with the competition's section chief at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Michael Harpin. It's a capture-the-flag format, so that's pretty standard in the the competition space. But for those who don't know, it gives uh, individuals a a task that they have to solve within a virtual machine. So for us in the President's Cup, it's it's very simple for all of our participants. All they need is an access to the Internet and a a web browser. And through going to cisa.gov slash President's Cup, they'll be able to find ways to register and, and then start playing in the competition. So we make it very lightweight for our, our participants to play. You mentioned team sizes. It has to be two to five, right? So two is our minimum and five is our maximum. And it can be from uh, any individuals from across uh, the federal government. So we're seeing a lot of mixed teams in the competition. We've seen the Postal Service join with some Department of Defense individuals. We've even seen some mixed teams of uh, military branches. Still no teams that have Army and Navy individuals on the same same group, though. Our individuals competition is split into two tracks. Track A, focusing on defensive uh, work roles and tasks, and Track B, focusing on offensive work roles and tasks. And we, we split that up just because there are different special specialties that we see. Some of the individuals that we see as repeat finalists, you know, they, they're smart enough that they're going to make it into uh, make it into the finals of both. But it's important to understand that as well for our individuals competition, that we split those up into defensive and offensive work roles and tasks. This year, what is the goal of the capture of the flag? Because each year is a little different. I remember in years past, there were specific objectives specific tasks you had to do. Uh, I imagine you don't want to give me too much because you don't want to ruin the surprise, but from a high level, how was this year's maybe looking different than previous years? How creative did you get to, where were you able to be? The competition this year, as it has been in years past, all of our challenges are created by the Software Engineering Institute out of Carnegie Mellon, SEI. So every year we start our challenge development cycles looking at new vulnerabilities that have come out that year, looking at some relevant topics to the cybersecurity community. So we take a look at CISA's Key Exploited Vulnerabilities Catalog, the KEV Catalog. We look at that to see what we can put in there that's testable within our infrastructure. We have some challenges this year that are focusing on zero trust architecture as well, you know, because that, that that's a highly relevant topic within, uh, within the community. And on top of that, you know, we're always looking to to push the limits within our competitions. We're going to incorporate some physical uh, ICS escape room challenges into our team's finals. 
that we host in person at CISA facilities the week of April 15th. Uh, so we're really looking forward to these incorporating these new new wrinkles, giving new vulnerabilities out to our participants. Now, Michael, you said zero trust, so buzzword one, bingo, ding, 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 but you didn't say AI. Uh, imagine there's uh, some AI in there somewhere because there has to be. How different is this from previous years? I mean, each year I know you try to build on it, but you can't give you apples one year and pizza the next year, or can you? Yeah, a lot of the tasks, the fundamental parts of cybersecurity are going to stay the same every year. You know, network security, you know, computers are, are, are functioning the same, right? AI is obviously a new wrinkle that we have to incorporate some of those large language models and, and using those within our challenges. So, so we do touch on that a little bit. But we also do want to, you know, a lot of the fundamental skills that we see within the workforce we want to continue to to assess and test within the competition. You know, those are always key to see within not just uh, the competition, but also to see within in workforce development. So, yeah, it, it's a new flavor uh, to the pizza every year, but there is, that is always on the menu. We always do have to test those fundamental key skills uh, within the cybersecurity community. Now, I want to be clear, if you win, you don't, you, you, there's no money here. There's just good bragging rights, which I know if you correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's a, a team from the Army. Uh, it's three, three years in a row, maybe? The team from the Army, there are individuals who have been on the, every winning team we, we've, uh, we've had in the competition. So this is our fifth year of the competition. The Army has won the team's competition every year. We've had a lot of Department of Defense representation within the, the uh, winner's circle every year. So last year, we did see an individual from the FBI who placed within our defensive competition. That was the first time we've seen that. We're seeing the competition grow as well, too. So this year, we're allowing uh, individuals to, to register by their agency and not just their department, as we've done in years past. So we're seeing a lot of growth within the competition, who's been out there playing. And uh, we think that's also going to give some some representation, some additional representation uh, to these other agencies and probably, you know, in the finals uh, and in our winner's circle that they can represent the agency that they work for uh, and not just at the high level department level. And I imagine also says, well, if, if I'm somebody who says I'm not really a cybersecurity expert, but I can go do that, those, those past challenges and then maybe realize, hey, maybe I do have some aptitude for this. And it's a way for you all to say, hey, just because you don't have cybersecurity at the end of your name doesn't mean you can't do cybersecurity. I heard this recently that, you know, agencies are starting to say, okay, we want some aptitude of people who maybe didn't get prop, you know, formally trained, but could really be great problem solvers, which a lot of what cybersecurity is. Is that the other kind of big benefit you're hoping comes from having holding competitions like this? Yeah, absolutely. And we see that within our competitors. Uh, obviously, uh, our finalists are always going to have a, uh, a strong technical background, and we see that we are our best performing uh, competitors. But within the competition, you have a session timer, so there's, there's a range of time you have within the competition to start it. We give you eight days, but once you start your session, you have a certain amount of time to complete as many challenges you can, as you can. It's six hours in teams and four hours in individuals. And so not only do we see individuals with a strong technical background, but time management, uh, prioritization, can they research, AKA Google, their, the, the things they're stuck on well uh, with the teams and we see it in finals uh, in person, are they communicating well or are they splitting up and each person is, is solving their own challenges? We see a lot of success on those, in those teams that can communicate, work together, 
and solve those problems. So there are some of those soft skills that assist as well in winning the competition. But then, you know, like you said, if you don't have uh, cybersecurity in your in your job title, you can use our challenges to see, hey, what does it look like? What does ransomware do? What does it look like? You know, you can get in there and see, hey, what does it look like to to properly set up IPv6 in a network? We have uh, those kind of challenges if people are interested, if they're you know, learning these new concepts, uh, maybe they're in a cybersecurity agency, but don't have that type of a work role, they could at least play our challenges to understand a little bit of what are those topics that we're working on within our organization. Do I need permission from my manager? Do I need to get approval? Do I do this during work hours? Do I do this on my own weekends and nights? What does CISA recommend? And it's probably yes to all of the above. So we, we encourage everyone to, to get in and play. Any federal employee, we encourage you to play in the President's Cup. And then uh, if they have all that information, times is all through CISA.gov slash President's Cup and the links to, to, to get to our competition site and enroll. You know, we're, we're trying to get that encouragement from supervisors, you know, CISA and our cybersecurity division. We encourage our supervisors. Obviously, operational need comes first and prior is a priority. But it's a great opportunity to highlight some unique skill sets in the federal workforce. And it's it's also hard in everyday work to really you know, verify that negative. Did you properly set up your network? Did you defend that threat? And, you know, while the competition, yes, it's a game uh, and it's a gaming environment, but it still has those real world tasks within it. And this gives them an opportunity to shine. So, yes, we encourage everyone to play, get your hands on, get some experience. And we also encourage, you know, all throughout the federal government, you know, giving your workforce an opportunity to shine and get recognized uh, and play and make those changes and support them to allow them to play in the competition. Michael Harpin, the competition's section chief of the Cyber Defense Education and Training Branch at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more details in Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, can a data environment really improve federal procurement? But first, the U.S. Geological Survey brings new technology to an old mission. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The U.S. Geological Survey has turned to quantum technology to help it with the next generation of challenges in geological science. It established a cooperative research and development agreement, a CRADA, with a quantum company called Q-Control. For details of what's going on, we turn to the director of the USGS National Innovation Center, Jonathan Stock. Mr. Stock, good to have you with us. Thank you very much, Tom. Pleasure to be here. First of all, let's begin with what problems USGS has that you're trying to solve that quantum technologies will help. Then we'll get into what the quantum technologies are. Let's bring your listeners in. Many of your listeners will be aware that we are in the middle of an energy transition and we're moving into a future where we use electricity in different ways and we want to store that electricity. And that takes minerals. And it turns out that the minerals we need to store our electricity and batteries while that technology is constantly changing and we may see new minerals come on, right now the minerals we need are in short supply and subject to disruption from, let's say, political events. So we have a national need to improve our ability to detect and assess those minerals in the subsurface. All right. And so how do we do it now and how would quantum technology help improve that? 
So ideally, we would walk around with a large flashlight that would shine into the subsurface and we would see the things we need. Sadly, that flashlight does not yet exist. And so instead, we depend on a host of geophysical techniques that are, in essence, ways of sounding the subsurface. For instance, some of my geophysical colleagues will fly gravimeters over Earth's surface and measure gravity. And the interesting thing about gravity is that although we're taught that it's 9.81 meters per second per second, it actually varies a great deal uh, when you start moving out into those decimal places, right? And the reason it varies is because there are rocks of different density in the subsurface. So one of the tools that my geophysical colleagues have to map the subsurface is by measuring very precisely gravity. And when you move your gravimeter, which measures gravity, over a big dense body, the spring extends a bit more because gravity is a bit higher over that really dense body. It's attracting mass. And so if you're canny, you can fly your gravimeter around and measure variations in gravity that tells you something about what's in the subsurface. Right. And it can tell by the reading whether it's lithium or iron. Well, we're not that good yet, but it does tell us bulk density. And so one of the things that we try and do as geologists is we try and paint a picture of what the structure of the subsurface is. We use lots of different techniques. In this case, I'm focusing on gravity because it's, well, relative to the sensor that we're going to talk about, the quantum sensor. So we use gravity and we attempt to differentiate rock bodies in the subsurface. What does that mean? It means that we tell a big, dense rock from a light rock. And so for viewers, for instance, granites are typically a relatively low-density rock. That's the light stuff that often winds up in our countertops. Let's say a basalt or a gravel or a dark and dense rock. And so we can essentially tell where those rock bodies are on the subsurface. And then if we're really canny, it's guilt by association. We can look at the geometry of that rock body and say, well, this geometry suggests that this is a mineral deposit. And then we go to secondary tools to find exactly what kind of minerals are in that. So it's guilt by association, and it's about imaging that structure in the subsurface and improvements. And so the quantum part is a dramatic improvement. All right. Yeah. So what is the quantum technology? I mean, you mentioned a spring. I guess that's a term of art, but there's something pulling down and then you get a readout. That's the old school, like for those of us who suffered through physics classes in high school or maybe even college, right? You had a spring and you watch how that spring changes uh, as it gets accelerated by, for instance, gravity. The modern day survey hires contractors who take very large gravimeters. These are sort of like, you know, small Volkswagen-sized gravimeters. They fly them around in planes. It's very expensive. And we get a relative sense of what gravity looks like, and we can turn that into a subsurface map. Now, notice the challenges there. One of the challenges is it's really expensive, so we don't do a lot of it, or at least we don't do as much as we'd like. And the other challenge is it's really big, and so therefore we typically only do it over large areas. So the promise of quantum in this case is to shrink the size of that gravimeter and also at the same time to either keep the accuracy, or even in some cases, we hope, improve it. And so we're talking about taking an old instrument that's large and expensive and turning it into a much smaller, lighter weight instrument that's less costly. And that means that we get to shine our flashlight into the subsurface many more places with much higher resolution. 
We're speaking with Jonathan Stock. He's director of the National Innovation Center at the U.S. Geological Survey. And the fact that you have a CRADA with this company that makes this quantum technology sounds like this is not something that's commonly commercially available then yet. Not at all. And in fact, as the name implies, it's research, right? So we are working with Q Control, and of course, we're interested in other partners as well to explore whether their software and sensors have the capability of getting us much lower cost, much higher resolution subsurface data. Of course, it's a CRADA, it's a cooperative research development agreement. So, well, will it work? We don't know. It's research. We have a strong belief in this company and some of the others in the field that they have developed the tools that it takes to interpret this quantum data. And in fact, if you talk to them, they'll tell you that one of the ways they do that is they're essentially watching how atoms fall in Earth's gravitational field. So you've got this instrument, you're flying it around on a small platform. Maybe it's a drone, maybe it's an airplane. And then you're essentially watching how atoms fall inside the instrument Because the rate at which they fall tells you, well, the gravitational accelerant. Now, imagine all the challenges to doing that while you're in motion. It's kind of like riding a unicycle and doing trigonometry at the same time, right? Because, you know, the atoms are uh, moving around not just because of Earth's gravitation, but also because, well, the plane is moving or the drone is moving. It's moving up. It's moving down. It's moving sideways. It's rolling. So all these different accelerations also influence. And then on top of that, there's the inherent noise that's in quantum techniques. And so the premise of Q-Control and other companies like that is that they can essentially do all the calculations that are required to remove that noise. So that's the trigonometry on a unicycle. And what is the nature of the sensor that would be pointed down there that contains the atoms? And, you know, just give us the big picture here. There's some atoms in it. What kinds of atoms are they and what's looking at the atoms? (laughs) <laughs> That's a great question. Q-Control, of course, are the experts here, but essentially we are shining lasers through these falling atoms and using diffraction patterns to tell us the rate at which particular atoms are falling. They have a variety of different elements that they use, and of course there's a research industry built up around this. As you can imagine, the real challenge here is in taking all the noise out, because People have learned with some degree of confidence how to do this problem when we've got a big sort of Volkswagen-sized instrument sitting stable on Earth's surface, or relatively stable. The challenge is, okay, well, now what happens when you make it a lot smaller and start moving it around, right? And that's where all of the sort of trigonometry and use cycle comes in, because you've got to take out all the accelerations from not being still and all the inherent noise in that quantum system. And for the details of that, I mean, that that's a cue control question. They're, they're good at sure. that, and, and I wouldn't want to speak over them on that. And with respect to just quantum measurement of Earth phenomena, besides gravitational fields, are there other things potentially that could be measured? Yes, but we also have an interest in working with them on another geophysical measurement called magnetometry, which is essentially measuring the direction and strength of the magnetic field on Earth. And you can imagine for similar reasons, if you have charged particles, they will orient. And once again, you can look at how those orientations happen at atomic levels and get, let's say, if you can get the noise out of the system, very accurate readings of direction and magnitude for the, you know, the little magnetic compass that's sitting there in Earth's field. Now, at the moment, you happen to be tasked to NASA. So is that because they think this could be useful and not just here on Earth? 
Well, we do have an interest, and as part of that data, we're exploring the potential to use these kind of low size weight and power sensors, in this case, gravimetry and magnetometry or gravity and magnetics, to explore for resources off-world. As your listeners will know, if you can take uh, small, lightweight things off-world uh, <laughs> that don't require a lot of energy, <laughs> that's a lot better than taking really large, uh, weighty things that require a lot of energy. So small size, weight, and power mean potentially we could develop maps of the subsurface of off-world bodies, whether that is the moon or Mars. And by doing so, find the things that I think the nation needs from us, which are, well, resources, batteries for a new economy, volatiles on the moon, as well as potentially hazards, faults in the subsurface, um, and let's say sources of volcanic unrest. And just a quick question on the computing architecture of this. If you have something flying over with the sensor on it, you know, artificial intelligence, for the most part, algorithms require graphics processing units, GPUs. They use a lot of power. And so you would have to have a lot of computer up there. Or do you envision this something where the data is gathered and then the analysis would be done when the drone comes back from that spot? Well, as your listeners will know, that's a trade space, right? So it, it costs energy to transmit data. It also costs energy to do calculations on board, aka edge compute. And in this case, it looks like the trade space plays in favor of doing most of the calculations on board and then using the resultant models that one might develop on your edge computer on board to direct the sensor where to fly to take the most impactful next measurement. So that style of data acquisition is called payload-directed flight or perhaps model-directed data acquisition. And it's premised on the notion that ultimately you're flying the sensor around so that you can make a really good three-dimensional model. And so why would you not build the model on the fly and then fill in the parts of it that look like they're the lowest resolution? And so that, again, I think that plays to the notion that edge compute is an important component here because it reduces the amount of power you have to use to send lots of data back to Earth to be processed, or let's say from a remote place on Earth. And just a final question, do you envision someday this technology will be refined to the point that those that would commercially exploit the existence of these rare Earth elements would have a better idea of where to start looking and digging? Because that's when it gets expensive when you start trying to mine and refine. Well, absolutely. And that is the appropriate federal role here is to buy down the risk on these kind of technologies so that uh, in the future we can reduce the impact of finding resources and extracting them. And the role of this particular crater is to test the notion that these technologies will improve our ability to shine that flashlight into the subsurface to find resources and hazards. Jonathan Stock is director of the National Innovation Center at the U.S. Geological Survey. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, can a data environment actually improve federal procurement? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Lost in all of the other activity in the last few months is a Biden administration proposal to create a new Office of Management and Budget Circular. 
Now, this new circular describes a centralized data management strategy to help agencies with acquisition decision-making. One industry group has questions, though. We get more now from the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. They want to talk about a data environment where all kinds of procurement data would be brought together. I thought these things sort of exist now. What's the uh, council's take on this proposal? Well, Tom, thanks so much for raising this issue. It is a big deal for OMB to release a proposed new circular and particularly to ask the public for comments on it. So while we appreciate the visibility into what they're thinking, we do have a lot of questions. And our comments reflected five or six of these, uh, and I can go quickly through them now. You're exactly right. There are data environments that are created agency by agency. And so what this circular does propose to do is create an enterprise-wide data system to gather, collect, analyze, access, et cetera, acquisition data. One of the concerns that we have in our government contracting community is you know, who would be authorized to access that data? How would they protect it? As you know, a lot of the cost and pricing data are business sensitive. And so it really does become the competitor's competitive edge vis-a-vis their, their, um, the rest of the industry. And so who will access this data, how, et cetera, becomes very, very important. One question, would it be what's already publicly available, which is the price of a particular contract, because contracts are public information, and we bought this much of this from this agency for this much, versus how much is bid and range and proprietary information that I guess is recorded by the government, but it's not supposed to be made public. That's a great synopsis of it, Tom, because part of it is, you know, unpacking sub-tier so your subcontractor, your vendor data, also what discounts do you offer to the agency in the course of negotiations? That's also very, very sensitive. And so the comments that we have focus on access and, and authorization to get these data out of the system. Another one is sub-tier pricing, et cetera, which can be a challenge for even prime contractors to get. Oftentimes from their subcontractor, they'll get a number, but they don't know what comprises that number. Another issue that we have is you know, what requirements are for one agency are not exactly matched to another agency's requirements. And so it could be an apples to oranges comparison here. And so how are they training folks accessing this data to actually understand what it is that they're looking at? Right. If you're looking at, say, the data regarding the acquisition of Canon printers or something, that's one thing. But if you're looking at professional services, those all have a slightly different take and flavor because no two right. projects are identical. And no two individuals are identical, right? So you may even have one uh, position description for one company and it requires five years experience, but what you pay one individual is not what you pay another individual. And so again, being able to understand these data, to, to be able to analyze them. One concern we have, as I mentioned earlier, is how are these folks in the government being trained to look at this data? 100% agree that you know Better Contracting Initiative, which was rolled out by the administration back in November to save billions of dollars to the American taxpayer, that's good intent. But the, the devil is in the details here. And how will they protect the information? And how will people understand it? And that's not clear from the circular. Besides, I mean, aren't we sort of 10 years into category management and the rise of the IDIQ with hundreds, sometimes scores or hundreds of contractors on them, all with pre-negotiated pricing? And we're in a basically task order world now. Is this needed at this point? This sounds sort of 1990-ish. I'm glad you raised that because one of the comments that we have, and, and you mentioned IDIQs and government-wide acquisition contract vehicles, et cetera, 
There has also been a, a push for lowest price, technically acceptable versus best value. That is a conversation that's been had over the last decade or so. Um, and for me, when I look at how they're gathering data, collecting it, analyzing it, sharing it, I just hope that this is not a push towards let's do lowest price, technically acceptable, because the best value is where you get those nuances of that you know five-year requirement uh, for an individual that I mentioned earlier. You know, they're not all created equal, particularly in the services arena. And so we're watching this very closely to make sure this is not a trend towards LPTA, that it is actually getting the government what they want, what they need as the best value of proposition. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro. She is vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council. And I want to switch topics here and ask you about the, been out now a couple of weeks now, the National Defense Industrial Strategy. I think people were expecting something more aimed at the fact that there's a shortage of suppliers and of critical commodities needed by the Defense Department. It looked to me like more of a recitation of general supply chain issues and so on. And what was the Professional Services Council take on it? So we welcomed this first ever industrial-based strategy. Um, you know, I was born and raised professionally at the Pentagon. And so for me, a strategy is ends, ways, and means. And the means piece is the resourcing piece. And for me, that's sort of what's missing from this strategy. I'm sure that information will come. Um, but you're right. It does talk a lot about resilient supply chains, making sure they understand as the customer that DOD understands its uh, industrial base, where they're getting certain items, et cetera. There are other areas that are of high interest to the Professional Services Council. And one focus area in this strategy is the workforce readiness. So they talk about a lot about touch labor, et cetera, and making sure they can destigmatize production careers for, for young folks. Because we are the Professional Services Council, we look at the other side of that coin, which is the services piece of it. And we also look at something separate, which is not yet really addressed in the strategy, which is how are you going to train contracting officers within the government or contracting officer representatives in the government to understand technology and what they're looking at? So we're looking to the Pentagon to, to talk a little bit more about workforce readiness in a holistic manner, not just the touch labor piece. Although if you look at what the DOD's issue is, it's not getting software, for example. There's millions of mediocre software programmers in the country <laughs> and some really lousy ones that manage to get their stuff into the market. But welders, people that understand how to make a really good complex forging or casting and the companies to do that kind of stuff with some of the new exotic alloys, that not so much these days. Right. And one of the focus areas they have, you know, obviously is, as I mentioned, the destigmatization of, you know, those kinds of careers for welders, uh, electricians, etc. They do have a, a few lines about uh, targeting critical STEM sets. So talking about wanting the government and government contracting work to be attractive to generations, not just the purely commercial work. And that's where, you know, we are seeing some issues within the professional services community of, you know, why work for a government contractor if you could work for a purely commercial entity? And so that's the struggle. Uh, to call it a struggle is probably an overstatement, but that is one of the challenges that we're facing in terms of recruiting, retention, promotion of the next generation of workers. Yeah, it's really a balance because looking at the tanker that the, the Defense Department has been trying to buy now, I don't know, 20, 25 years to get a tanker. There's a couple yeah. copies, I guess, flying of this new one, but it's really not in mass production yet. You've got designers, but then you also have those people on the line that have to, you know, make sure the door plugs don't blow off. That would be bad for a tanker with a fighter <laughs> right. flying underneath it. Sorry. Right. But, you know, that's a defense industrial-based topic. 100%. And I also think about those sustainers right? The repair personnel who have to be out there and that's considered a service, right? So when we, when we talk about 
um, production lines, I think that's great, but you also have to train the workforce to be able to to use what's coming off the production line. Um, another area, Tom, just so so we can talk about the two other focus areas of the strategy is flexibility and acquisition authorities um, and making sure you know you have either multi-year procurement authority, et cetera. This is where we run into who owns the intellectual property. And so we're working with the, the Pentagon and folks who are leading the strategy through to implementation about you know what what does it mean for companies and then the last the fourth area they're looking at is economic deterrence which is making sure that we are participating in standard setting bodies etc so it's a little bit more esoteric than some of the other topics but as a whole we are really looking forward to working with the Department of Defense on its implementation plan we understand that will be classified and and that's that's fine but as we move forward what input can we provide to help them understand from the industry side what these four prongs, supply chain, workforce, acquisition, and economic deterrence, how they impact us. And not to gloss over that area about standard setting, but China would like to be the country that sets the standards for industrial goods and so on, process industries. And it's always been kind of a United States-led and European-led type of thing that seeds some economic power when you seed the standard setting power. It's actually a pretty crucial issue. That's exactly right. And I, I think this is also where our alliances and strategic partnerships come into play of you know, who, who are the folks who are going to be standing with us instead setting those standards when you might be across the table from an economic powerhouse like China? A lot of countries around the world are dependent on China for some of their goods. Um, and so making sure that the U.S. has a very strong voice alongside our partners and allies. Well, I have two sets of sockets and wrenches and probably always will. So we want to make sure that there's a, <laughs> that standard is still there. Stephanie Castro is vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com along with a link to more information slash Federal Drive. If you hear the Federal Drive on demand, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Interior Department, like many other agencies, is scaling up in-person requirements for employees, this on the request of the Biden administration. House Republicans remained unsatisfied, though. They say telework is to blame for worsening agency services to the public. They're calling for a return to pre-pandemic office arrangements. Mark Green, Interior's chief human capital officer, defended the department's stance on telework at a House committee hearing last week. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman reports. Congress members' continuous investigations into federal telework policy do not seem to be going away anytime soon. The Interior Department is only the latest to gain attention from members of Congress over its return to office plans. Despite some upcoming adjustments to Interior's telework policies, agency officials say telework has to remain an option. We believe the hybrid workforce uh, model that we're operating in now is one that works for the department. For the department to remain competitive for the talent we need in the future, especially in mission support occupations, we believe it's essential that we continue to offer workplace uh, flexibility such as telework and remote work. Mark Green is chief human capital officer at the Department of Interior. He says offering telework and remote work options supports recruitment and retention at the agency, as well as satisfaction and engagement of employees. But several Republican committee members pressed harder on Interior's telework posture, They say it's leading to performance issues and preventing the agency from fully meeting the public's needs. Telework and remote work can be useful in limited and well-defined circumstances. However, DOI has abused their excessive telework and remote work policies. That's Arizona Republican Paul Gosar. 
He blamed telework, for instance, on what he said was a massive backlog of projects at the National Park Service. That's one component of the Interior Department. Green, on the other hand, pushed back. He says telework has done the opposite. It's resulted in increased performance in many areas of the department. Uh, we're not seeing any individual employee uh, performance issues. And then again, uh, as we evaluate the department on our performance as a whole, we look at our strategic plan and we're actually seeing increases there. And we're actually seeing uh, better results on our federal employee viewpoint survey. Uh, around employee engagement, how connected they feel to the mission of the agency, how they could feel connected to each other. And federal employees' satisfaction in their jobs has broader impacts too, says Representative Melanie Stansbury, Democrat from New Mexico. Workplace satisfaction is not just a matter of people being happy in their jobs, but it's, it's a matter of national security. It's an, a matter of the federal government being able to carry out its mission. And it's a, a, the ability to actually serve the public in all of the different things that the department does. Agency officials also say that telework is a major recruitment benefit for many different components of the Interior Department, the National Park Service, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and many more. Don Locke, Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office, says since offering telework, Interior's pools of applicants have broadened, and they have better skill sets to choose from among their job applicants. With that being said, they also acknowledged that while recruitment and retention had improved, that not every position was suitable for telework because they had to be in person. But they said even if they offered one day a pay period to telework, when when those individuals who normally have to be in person just had to do administrative stuff behind the computer, that was beneficial to them. Given the nature of the department's work, Interior has relatively limited options for telework. Less than half of Interior's workforce is eligible for telework to begin with. Many employees are in public-facing positions, working on public lands, in recreation areas, in parks and wildlife refuges all of which require consistently on-site work. Overall, 65% of Interior's employees nationwide are currently working in person every day. But similar to many large federal departments, Interior's approach to telework is not one-size-fits-all. For instance, at one component of the department, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, about 80% of the staff works entirely in person. Department employees who can telework, on the other hand, are in jobs like information technology, human resources, and acquisition and financial management. Green says those employees are in very high demand in both the public and private sectors. That means that in those job fields, offering telework is important to be able to retain staff, Green says, competing against other potential employers. Even so, those eligible for telework at the Department of Interior will soon see their options become more limited. For feds working in the D.C. area, Interior says that many of its employees will soon have to be in person more frequently. Starting February 11th, those employees will have to work in the office or on site at least half of their work hours. The upcoming change is just a few months after senior executives, managers, and supervisors at the department also began working in the office about 50% of the time. Green says it'll be a significant adjustment overall for the department's employees. Taking these steps will ensure that over 70% of the employees in the national capital region will be working in person at greater rates. More broadly for agencies, the Government Accountability Office has said telework is an important tool for the federal workforce. But in the same breath, GAO is cautioning that telework has to be implemented appropriately to be able to work well. There are a few potential challenges with telework, like managing office space, and dealing with limitations in technology. 
but GAO official Don Locke says that there are ways to manage those challenges. What I want to make very clear regarding these challenges is that they could be mitigated if agencies followed key practices that provide a roadmap for successfully implementing telework programs. Those key practices, as Locke describes them, can mean a lot of different things, like having a dedicated telework office to provide oversight, ensuring appropriate technology for those working from home, and having evaluation plans in place to make course corrections where needed. GAO has said telework for agencies can also support reduction of office space and provide cost savings. It can also improve recruitment and retention and offer opportunities to better balance work and family demands for employees. GAO as an agency itself has maintained a flexible telework policy and Locke told Congresswoman Stansbury there were many benefits as a result. We assess the suitability of each position at GAO to determine if those positions could telework. And so those that were suitable for telework, uh, they have no impact on our performance. And in fact, in 2023, we um, exceeded our savings by $20 billion in a telework status. Which is another reason, of course, both the private and the public sector are seeking to um, increase opportunities for telework. It's not just that flexibility for employees, but it saves money for employers as well. Despite many agency officials like Locke and Green who are trying to emphasize the importance of federal telework, House Republicans continue to double down and push agencies for a return to office. During last week's hearing, Congressman Paul Gosar called for the enactment of the Show Up Act. It's a Republican-led bill that cleared the House in early 2023 and has been introduced in the Senate. If enacted, the Show Up Act would return the federal workforce to pre-pandemic work arrangements and largely reduce telework opportunities for employees. House Republicans like Gosar say they'll continue to push on agencies to make those changes. It is time for the DOI to return to more appropriate pre-pandemic levels of telework and remote work so that staff will have more and establish a stronger workplace culture for working in person. House Republicans have put forth a solution to the in-person absenteeism of federal employees. The Show Up Act, which would return federal agencies to pre-pandemic levels of telework and require federal agencies to submit studies to Congress detailing how increased telework levels during the pandemic impacted their missions. I urge the Senate to take up this legislation so we can get back to business here in D.C. Drew Friedman, Federal News Network. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.